Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. We are so glad that you are here. Um, we are, um, as Pastor Hope said, we are missing Pastor Doug this morning. And next week, he's going to be back for good from his world tour. Um, and uh, we um, continue to lift him up in our prayers and are grateful that he is in St. Louis doing important. Um, the word that we use as Methodists is holy conferencing. Um, and that means discussing things in a, a way that befits our character as disciples of Jesus. He is not a voting delegate, but we, as Pastor Hope said, that we are really honored that, um, um, unfortunately, due to someone becoming sick, that Dr. Richard Morrison is going to be representing our church. And um, um, there are only 16, I think, delegates in the North Carolina Conference, and so to have one that comes from Wrightsville is a real honor. And you all know another one of the voting delegates, um, Reverend Tim Russell, um, who is in um, St. Louis with Pam. Um, but we are, uh, we are glad to be worshiping this morning, in, um, even in Doug's absence, and I think maybe it's a bit of a blessing in disguise that he is not around today to taunt me about the Duke Carolina game. And so I would just urge you all to lift up our brother Zion Williamson in your prayers. <laughs> for his quick and speedy recovery, um, and pray for the Nike Corporation. <laughs> if y'all don't know what I'm saying, just Google it when you go home. Google shoe blowout. Um, Doug talks about weather all the time, and I talk about basketball, and I don't know what Hope talks about. Maybe the Bible. Yeah, yeah, so... Speaking, speaking of which, um, we um, are working through our um, uh, lessons along that go along with our children's Sunday school curriculum. So were there any kids here that were in Sunday school in the last hour? Tess was, Virginia Gray was. So y'all um, learned a couple verses from the book of Proverbs, right? Proverbs, and so the book of Proverbs is in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Psalms, and um, when I got this um, scripture assignment, I, I had to double check um, because most, mostly we read a longer story or a longer passage from Paul's letters, um, but here was just two random verses from the book of Proverbs that talk about family, um, and so I'm going to be reading one verse to us. Um, it's Proverbs 17, 17. And it says, a friend loves at all times, and kinfolk are born to share adversity. A friend loves at all times, and kinfolk are born to share adversity. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the friends that love us at all times, and for the kinfolk that share our adversity. Help us be faithful friends and family in the body of Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God. For you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Amen. They had to empty out the marble jar. Brene Brown, the writer and social worker and researcher, tells a story that her daughter told her about coming home from her third grade class. Her daughter, Ellen, came home, and Brene asked, um, how was school today, Ellen? And she said, it wasn't great, Mom. They had to empty out the marble jar. We lost some marbles out of the marble jar. Um, Brene Brown thought this meant they had lost their marbles, and she thought she knew what that had meant, but she decided to do that good parenting trick of asking another question and reserving judgment. Um, and she said, well, what did it mean to lose marbles out of the marble jar? And Ellen says, 
well, Mama, um, in class, whenever we do things that help build trust between us and our classmates, we put a marble in the marble jar. And sometimes that means that we, um, that we live according to our code of conduct. And, um, and she's like, so we are kind to each other, we are honest, we work hard, we speak respectfully, all of those things. All those things, you get a marble put in the marble jar. And she said, so there was marbles that left the marble jar? And they said, oh yeah. And then we had to, you know, we, had to, we didn't get any special privileges this week. And so, um, it, I, Brene Brown, I don't remember whether it was bullying, whether it was maybe someone being dishonest hitting or something else, but there were marbles that left the marble jar, and they had to put those marbles back in. And so Brene Brown, um, the patron saint of a teachable moment, said, what, is it, what would be in your marble jar? If we had friends and family, and we had a marble jar in which people put things in there, and those were little acts of love, that showed that we loved each other at all times. What would those be? And her daughter Ellen thought, and she said, you know, I think maybe if I was at my soccer game and I made a goal, and maybe my friend didn't make a goal, or maybe my friend didn't get, even get to play in the game, but then she came up to me and hugged me and said, congratulations, Ellen, I'm so proud of you. She goes, that would be putting a marble in the marble jar. And she said, or when people remember my grandparents' names, because I have I have grandparents, um, she goes, because you know, your, your family, we have um, grandma and grandpa, but also step-grandma and step-grandpa, and they remember all their names, and they recognize them, and they give them a hug. And she goes, that's putting a marble in the marble jar. And Brene Brown said, that's really cool. She goes, I can think of things that would do that too. If somebody said, I know you're having a really hard day, and I'm going to help buy you um, some food through the ministry of guacamole, maybe, um, and chips. Or she goes, I really like it when people say, hey, it's so good to see you. Um, welcome back from wherever town they lived in to my parents. Those little, small, ordinary acts of love that help build up trust, that help us love each other, not in ways that make the news, but ways that build up our community every day. I was thinking about that this week, about all those little things that I have in my marble jar friendships. Do you have those? Friends that love you at all times, kinsfolk that were born to share adversity. Um, the book of Proverbs is kind of a funny little book. Um, it's, it's a book that it, often each verse or every couple verses have another little nugget of wisdom. It almost sounds like a fortune cookie, if you will. Um, these little quiet, pithy sayings. And this verse from Proverbs teaches us something, not something that happens all of the time, but something that we as followers of Jesus are called to aspire to, to grow into. Um, because haven't all of us had friends that did not love at all times? We remember that, don't we? We remember those times that the marbles were taken out of the marble jar. We remember the times that we took marbles out of the marble jar. We remember kinsfolk, maybe, that were not born to share adversity. Maybe there were family that caused us adversity. Maybe there were family whose adversity we caused. But love... Um, are described in this um, verse from Proverbs, not as perfect, but as people who are striving to love each other, to show up for each other, and keep showing up for each other, and keep showing up for each other, no matter what. I love that. 
I um, um, was reading this verse this week, and normally I kind of try to, you know, do a little bit of word study. What do the words mean? And break these things down. Read about um, an atlas about where these things were happening in the life of Jesus. But this one does not have very many words, and we understand what most of them mean, right? A friend loves at all times, and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. How many words? Thirteen. We know what they all mean. Um, they, uh, we, we understand what love is, or at least we think we do. It's not an unfamiliar word to us. It's one of those things, love, that is easy to recognize and hard to define, isn't it? Kind of like family. Some of us have blood family that we love, and some of us have adopted family. In the first service, I um, love children's time. Uh, I especially love children's time when I'm not doing children's time. No, I also love doing children's time. It's so fun. Um, but um, we get a funny little view from right here. And after Pastor Hope had taught the children about family and showed that picture of her daughter, um, uh, Dagny um, came running back to Wiggle Worship. She was the only child at children's time. And her, her parents normally sit right here, right about where, uh, right about where um, JC and Gloria, right about where Jackson and Christina are sitting. And so she ran over here and she embraced who, what I thought was her mother in a hug. But then I looked later and her mom and dad were sitting over here. She had run over here and given a huge hug to her friend Sherry Ingle in such a way that I didn't even know that it wasn't her family. That's what church is about, right? That's what love is about. I, um, well, I wonder, what is love? Kind of 80s and 90s babies will say, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Um, <laughs> sing it. Google it. Do the hand motions. Emily, have you heard that one? Anyway, she has. Um, but what is love? It's easy to uh, recognize, but it's hard to define. Um, I was thinking this week about something that um, my mom told me one time, and that has been told me over and over and over. It was one of these things, and I remember this especially as being somebody who has the kind of ridiculous audacity to stand up here in a robe and, um, and uh, like deign to speak for God. What a weird job. And yet, um, the verse says, or the saying said this, people usually won't remember what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Have you heard that? Have you experienced that? I remember that. And, and this week, as I've been meditating on love, especially in light of everything that is happening in our country and the world, especially in light of our general conference, where we are having Christian holy conversations about hard things. And I thought about that. I thought about another thing that someone told me, which was how we talk about important things is just as important as what result we come to. And another thing that someone said, because the kids are always watching and they are always listening to what we say and what we conduct ourselves. 
I think it's no accident. It's really beautiful that last Sunday we had Youth Sunday, and next Sunday we will have Children's Sabbath. Um, and it reminds us that whatever we do, we are training young worshipers, we are training young Christians, and we are trying to become more faithful followers of Jesus ourselves. I remember one time um, that I was um, um, in, in one of these moments where I was discerning my call to ministry. I was a little church out in Alamance County. Anybody been to Alamance County? Mebbin Sheet Station, cheapest gas on I-40. It was a town out in a little field outside, somewhere in between Swepsonville, Saxabaha, Mebbin, and Graham. Um, that is where um, the Lane family knows very well because in one of those funny Holy Spirit moments, um, a few years before I was there as a field ed intern and accepted my call to ministry, Doug Lane and his family were there serving as the senior pastor. This church had been founded like in the 1700s, and they had had pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor, and they had never had a woman pastor until two pastors after Doug, the field ed supervisor who I was there with. And so there I was as an intern at this church. It was very sweet. That church was, a lot of them were actually blood family. Um, and, and they were not going to leave that church. It, they, they, they were not going to leave that church no matter what. I mean, the preacher might say something, but they're staying. You know, like, you're going to go, but this is my church. Um, there was a cemetery out back in which great-grandma was buried, and like, you're not, you're not messing with my cemetery. Um, so in that place, some of them um, had heard um, Bible verses, had heard the teaching, and had a lot of difficult conversations and beliefs about what does it mean to have a woman pastor. Our church, the United Methodist Church, has been ordaining women since, uh, since 1956, um, which was pretty early, actually. Um, and uh, we have had women pastors here at this church for several years, but that church had never had one until my field ed supervisor was there. And, um, but bless it, there were a bunch of people that stayed. Even so. And I remember going to um, a, uh, a senior's lunch at a Golden Corral where we were indulging in the ministry of rolls and butter and I sat down with some people. I preached my first sermon there. And there was an older lady that sat there. And she said, you know what? I was raised to think certain things about preachers. She goes, I've read verses from the Bible. Uh, verses that said certain things that women should speak, shouldn't speak and they should say silent in church. She goes, now I don't know what I think about that. And she goes, Sugar, I don't know if I believe in lady preachers, but I sure do like to listen to you. <laughs> I've never quite understood where she came down on this, but I accepted the look on her face and the smile as an act of love. I don't remember exactly what she said, but I will never forget how she made me feel, right? Little drop, little marble, right there in that marble jar. I remember, again, a kind of a blog post I wrote a couple years ago on the internet. It was one of these things you think three people are going to read, and then somehow it gets reposted, and then somehow you're listed on some um, blogosphere um, where um, people are commenting. I did not um, pay attention to the first commandment of the internet, which is never read the comments. 
And in that, I read something that was a little bit different than the response of that lady at the Golden Corral. They had taken a verse of what I said. They said, you know, I, I had said, you know, I, I talk nearly all the time about Jesus. What I meant, of course, is, you know, sometimes I talk about God the Father and sometimes I talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, but they had, uh, this person wrote, this so-called, quote, preacher says that she talks most of the time about Jesus. I hate to hear what she's teaching the rest of the time. It was anonymous. I don't know exact wording, but I will never forget how that made me feel. And that was a little marble that was thrown out on the floor. Right? I, um, I think about this, and this has been going over and over in my mind, um, these sorts of things. Um, and this is just a small thing, but I know that you have moments like that for you. I um, was thinking about what the Apostle Paul taught us about love. Um, he taught in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, a passage that's very familiar to a lot of us. You've probably heard it read at a wedding. Um, it's, it's one of these that we can kind of quote by heart. It's one of the most beautiful passages of scripture, but I think we forget that it wasn't originally um, written for a couple or for a family. Um, it was written for the family of the body of Christ. You see, in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you read it and you read the book of Acts, you can tell that the body of Christ has not always had our act together. That we are beautiful people that sometime, that love at our best at all times and sometimes share adversity and sometimes we don't and we are called to do better. Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about communion. And now this was not communion with um, a, a, a tablecloth, with special practices, with the ushers telling everybody to come forward and a gluten-free station. This was communion that was a whole meal. The early Christians would gather together. They called it a love feast. And um, they would get together, and um, the brothers and sisters um, who were born, uh, who were related not by um, blood, but by the waters of baptism. And they would get together, and they would share dinner together, and they would talk, and they would do life together. And, um, and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, just a, a couple chapters before 13, he says, he talks about, in this passage, abuses at the Lord's Supper. And he says, he talks about um, how people were coming to dinner, and what they would do is some of them would drink all the communion wine, which was not Welsh's grape juice, and they would eat all the food. And um, he says, um, when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One gets hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Um, what should I say to you? Um, he says, y'all need, need to be aware of the needs of those around you. You need to love each other. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, he writes to this kind of messy church full of broken, beautiful sinners and saints, and he says this. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body, like to be martyred, so that I may boast, but if I do not have love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends, Paul says. But as for prophecies, all these words, they will come to an end. As for tongues, speaking in miraculous languages, they will come to an end. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, Paul says, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And probably I threw some of those marbles out of the marble jar. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. See how I got like an extra Bible passage in there? I heard one time at a wedding a pastor say, um, you know, this is something that we are called with the power of the Holy Spirit to aspire to and to live out in the world. But kind of in this life, we probably will not get totally there. But you know who has got there? They're like, you can take that, that verse, that passage, and if you sub, uh, substitute the word Jesus for the word love, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. And he said, that's who's going to be with you through your life together, through all those times. A friend loves at all times, and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. I was um, reading the past couple of weeks. Uh, reading is what I do in... Um, times of turmoil. It's what I do when I, need, um, when I need to get in my own little introvert bubble. It's what I do when I um, need to figure out something. I, um, I break out my Greek and my Hebrew. I break out my Harry Potters. I break out all my old dusty books and I order a bunch of things from Amazon. And so in a time in which um, over and over it's almost become a truism in the past couple years that people say, I feel like we are so polarized and so divided on so many things. I can't remember the last time it was like this. Our administrative council meets every year. That group that's the pastors and the lay people, um, the lay leaders that lead our church, many of you, um, and they come up with goals for the year. And they say, what is Wrightsville United Methodist Church called to do in this community, in this place, at this time? And um, the past three times, twice, I think the past three or four years, twice the word unity has come up. Unity. Um, we talk about it. When uh, the creed, when we say, I believe in one holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal. It means being one. Um, and we as Christians, we know that the body of Christ is split up. We have 38,000 denominations in the United States. 38,000, not churches, denominations. In some ways, the body of Christ does not seem to be one, and yet we work to make it one. Um, so I was thinking about unity, and so I ordered a book um, by a couple of um, 
couple of women who I listen to their podcast, um, they, um, they wrote a book called, I Think You're Wrong, parentheses, but I'm listening. And um, so these two women who are um, describe themselves on the political spectrum as uh, liberal and conservative, they call themselves Sarah from the left and Beth from the right, and they were sorority sisters at Transylvania University in Kentucky. Um, and they decided, we are tired of the way uh, we do things as if everything has to be a scorched earth campaign. We um, think that things are important enough to talk about, but they are not important enough to hate about. And so they get together and they talk about this. And their ground rules for which they have faced some criticism, they said no shouting, no insults, and keep it nuanced, y'all. I love it, it's Kentucky. Um, and so people have unsubscribed and they've said, okay, we don't, you don't disagree enough. And they said, no, what, what you mean is we don't yell at each other and insult each other. That's different, right? It's almost become this thing that I feel like it's more likely that we are, uh, it's less likely that a friendship or whatever, we are going to show up for each other almost if we, have, uh, if we have cancer or a divorce more than we can show up for people if they think or vote or believe a different way. That hurts me. <laughs> and I know that I'm part of it, and I don't want to be. So I read this book, and I was... Um, 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 on the book, um, it had an epigraph from an old dusty sermon uh, from the Reverend John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. And I thought, oh, good, something else to read. <laughs> but it was like a blast from the past, because I remembered when I was in divinity school and how I decided to become United Methodist. Part of what sealed the deal for me was reading this sermon. It was a sermon called The Catholic Spirit that John Wesley had written um, in the 1700s. He was writing it to the Methodists, which at that time were within the Church of England. Uh, but he was also writing it to send out to the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Quakers and the Mennonites and everybody in between. And the basic gist of the sermon says this. I think it is very important to know what I believe and to believe what I believe, to search the scriptures, to pray, to think about things through the important lenses, to interpret scripture through tradition, through using our God-given reason, through the experience of the Holy Spirit. But we are not going to all come down on the same thing, the side of heaven. And so he said, if your heart is the same as my heart, then lend me your hand. If your heart is as my heart, then lend me your hand. If your heart is full of love for God and for your neighbor, then let's work together. He said this, that we cannot think alike May we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. These remaining as they are, they may forward one another in love and in good works. If your heart is as my heart, then give me your hand. I thought, well, I we could have written that in 2019. Um, and yet, I think that this old sermon gives us a couple of things in how we can live together as people who love at all times, who are born to share adversity with each other. Um, John Wesley says, number one, love me, and love me as a brother in Christ. Love each other. Put those marbles in that marble jar. Fail five times and say you're sorry six times. Show up and keep showing up and keep showing up again. Go and listen and even if you think I am right 100%, Holy Spirit, hallelujah, 
Maybe, maybe, at least listen to the pain of your brothers and sisters, to the joy of your brothers and sisters. Love each other. The second thing he says is commend me to God in all thy prayers, which means pray for me. Pray for me. Um, he says, pray for one another. And this is not in like a passy-aggressy kind of way. Like, have you ever heard a passive-aggressive prayer request? Like, God, uh, uh, we need to pray for Becky because she's a, oh, have you seen her lately? Mm. Um, that is prayer request disguised as gossip. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, God loves us where we are. But, um, uh, but pray for each other. John Wesley says, pray for me that I may become a more faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, Pray for me that even if I am wrong, then God will show me. Um, So we are called to love each other, to pray for each other. The third thing that John Wesley says to do is provoke me to love and to good works. I love that. Provoke is usually like provoke me to anger, right? Provoke somebody to love and to good works. I love the wording of that Stephen minister um, commissioning. I'm going to take that home because I feel like that's kind of our call, all of us as people of Christ. And I'm grateful for Babs and for Phyllis who are provoking us to love and good works. I'm grateful for all of y'all who provoke me to love and good works. Um, We are not meant to do this by ourselves. We are meant to grow together. Um, I I think sometimes we have developed this kind of call-out culture. Do you know what I mean? There are some things that need to be called out. Abuse and violence. Um, uh, We need to protect children and people who are vulnerable and face harm. But sometimes I think there is one volume, and it is like 15 on a scale of 1 to 10. And everything has to be called out. I wonder how things would be different if also... As part of that, we also called each other out for love. What is it to say, hey, when you, Pastor Hope, are in a room, I feel a calm and centering spirit of the Holy Spirit. You provoke me to love and kindness. What is it to say for me to say, uh, you know what, Tess, I just really love when you're at children's sermon, and I feel like you are so good at this, you could teach the children's sermon yourself. You provoke me to love and kindness. What would it mean for me to say, you know, Melissa Wagenseller, you are, uh, you are true blue, and if some, you need something done, Melissa will be there behind the scenes. She won't say anything except when she's ringing bells. Um, but she will be there. You provoke me to love and kindness. Uh, Mickey Perry with that brown chair, you provoke me to love and kindness. We could keep doing this, right? What would it be like if we said, I see you put that marble in that marble jar? Um, I see you, and you're making me be better. The fourth thing John Wesley says is, love me, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. I, um, I, I wonder about um, the way um, we are setting an example, not only for each other, not only for our children, but also sometimes as Christians, as the body of Christ, for the world around us that is watching and is hungry for some good news. Right? I, um, Pastor Hope was sharing earlier that she is fifth generation United Methodist. Fifth generation. And Pastor Doug is several generations back. I am not. I'm a convert. I've only been a United Methodist for less than 10 years. I remember when I joined. I did it after taking five classes on Methodist history, theology, polity, and everything, because that's the way I roll. I had come to a little church, a little struggling church in Durham, North Carolina. 
And I went once expecting to go and then church shop, and I never left. Um, it was a messy church. It did not even own the building that it, that it worshipped in. It met in a church that had gone out of business and sold the church to a preschool slash charter school that rented the building out to our church. You got that? So it was a church that met in a church, but it wasn't our church. Um, in this was this vision of unity that was not uniformity. It was difference. And it was saying, we need all of us in the body of Christ. Um, you belong to me. There was a black pastor and a white pastor who had started this church together because they said, as Christians, we're called to be something different in the world. And they decided right there on Fayetteville Street in Durham, North Carolina, that they wanted to be a witness of what love, costly love, meant. And um, I got to be there. I got to be there. It doesn't exist anymore, it's, um, uh, but it has uh, combined with a historically African-American Methodist church. Um, but I sang in the gospel choir with them. Um, it was lovely. I, I sang with Miss Bernice, who was present with Dr. King at Selma. I sang with Dr. Ruth, who um, said that he had come to this place, and it was, um, um, had been an act of repentance for him. As a child, he had been deeply prejudiced, and he said in front of the church in a sermon, I'm sorry to people. At that church, we sang a song that um, on the ministry of Facebook I read yesterday that they had sung at General Conference. You see, at our General Conference, they have got four days. Four days, 860 delegates to decide what we think about big, important things. And so, you know what they did the first day? They prayed. All day. All day. They sang how great their art in Swedish. Um, and, but then they sang this beautiful song written by Hezekiah Walker, and apparently the bishops, who are of many different minds on this, some black, some white, some LGBT, some straight, some, um, um, some women, and they held hands and they sang this song and it said, I need you to survive. We're all a part of God's body. It is God's will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. I pray for you. You pray for me. I love you. I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. And that was a moment of the Holy Spirit coming down and showing us a vision of what the church is supposed to be, I think. If you read all throughout this book, you can read. You can read the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, our our uh, denomination and our world are involved in a lot of important conversations right now. Very important. And I don't think, um, in John Wesley's sermon, he did not say, let go of your beliefs. He did not say, this is unimportant. He didn't say, you know, this is just Coke or Pepsi, cilantro is good, cilantro is bad, Duke or Carolina. These are important beliefs and convictions. He said, know what you believe. Be able to say what you believe. Be able to listen and live together with grace. Um, but he also said that our work as the body of Christ is about showing the world a love that is so beautiful that they are attracted to it. Um, John Wesley is one of my, um, one of the people that made me become Methodist. 
Um, I remember hearing stories about this, and I was at, um, I was at uh, Duke Divinity School when I became Methodist, and I, I went to that little church, and Methodists kind of loved me in with, um, with King's Hawaiian bread and grape juice, which was the most delicious communion. Um, but they loved me in through good old songs like Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. And I learned in my class that all Wesleyan hymns start on earth and end in heaven. And I just love that. I love the stories I heard about John Wesley. I heard that we begin with grace, that we are with grace in the middle, and we are with grace in the end. I heard that um, the story about John Wesley, when he came to the United States, it was called the Colonies then, um, and he went on a mission with the Church of England, and he was on a boat, on a boat, and um, the boat was about to shipwreck, and there was a huge storm, and he said, I was scared out of my mind. And then he looked over, and he saw a group of Christians, they were Moravian Christians, And they were praying and singing like they had not a care in the world. And I love John Wesley because he said, I knew I didn't have that kind of faith, and I knew that I wanted it. And I love the United Methodist Church because we celebrate this story of John Wesley that he went to a Bible study one day because he was still trying to work it out. And he uh, said that one day he felt his heart strangely warmed. I love that. It's not from a burrito. It's from the Holy Spirit. I felt my heart strangely warmed that I knew that the love of God was for me, for me, and that my sins were washed away, and that Jesus Christ was my Savior. And I love that like four weeks after that, because this is what God does, John Wesley said, I realized I needed to go out from the pulpit, and I needed to go out and stand in a field and preach to 3,000 people and tell them about the love of Christ. And people didn't do that in the 1700s in England. Like, um, and he said, I have submitted to become more vile. I love that. He's like, I'm going to look like a crazy person for Jesus. And I love that, although he was so scared at the end of his life, he um, uh, went to God, uh, went to heaven singing, and he said, the best of all is that God is with us. That was written over the, um, the archway at Duke Divinity School that I passed under every day. I love that we are a purple church. I love that we acknowledge that, um, that you may think differently than me about just about everything other than the Apostles' Creed. And I love that we love each other. Um, I became... Um, I became United Methodist, and, and some of that was that um, I grew up um, uh, hearing 45-minute sermons, and that's why we are so late for lunch. Um, so I am very sorry. Um, I, was, I was dunked in a baptismal font, and my mom was on the search committee of her church, and they called a um, United Methodist pastor to interview, and they said, all we heard on, the, on your website was this little 15-minute mini-devotional. Can you send us a proper sermon? And he send a, said, how long do you want it to be? And, he, and they said, well, at least 30 minutes. You can't say anything unless than that. But I became Methodist not because of words. I became Methodist because of um, this table, this communion table. And um, before I ever felt a call to preach, I felt, um, I saw our campus chaplain um, at this table, and she would celebrate communion every week at Duke Divinity Chapel. And I would go, and um, there was something about the way she reached out in such a posture of welcome. And I looked at that, and I said, huh, I want to do that. I want to feed people. I want to tell them that they're welcome at God's table. 
And so then we went and did a bunch of classes, and we baptized a baby doll about 25 times. It's either very holy or very sinful, that baby doll. And then my, my teacher, we um, were gathered around the table because we were learning how to serve communion. Um, you think it would be easy, but it's harder than you think. And so here we were, all of the little baby pastors, and um, we were sitting here, and she said, okay, so put your hands out in the proper posture. And we, uh, they said, just do what you've been watching everybody do all your whole life. And so we did this, like tiny T-Rex hands, right? Like tiny things. Uh, and she said, no, 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 bigger, wider. And so we were like, okay. She goes, nope, nope, bigger, wider. And we did this, and then we were up here, and it was like cactus pose and yoga or like touchdown. And she said, nope, I need you to make it wider. She had a picture of Jesus that looked kind of like the stained glass window at the back with his hands extended in prayer. And she said, Part of the reason you're a pastor, part of the reason why we're Christians is to show the world what God looks like. And it matters, not just what we think, not just what we say, but what we do with our body, what we do with our hands. And so she said, make them wider. So we widened them up, and we widened them up. She goes, good, good, you're there, hold it up. So we held it up. We kept holding it up. We kept holding it up. (laughs) And I said, oh my gosh, this aches. And then, I don't remember for the life of me whether or not it was my teacher that said this or whether it was just God speaking it into my heart, and I don't know if it really even matters. But she said, yeah, it aches. Keep holding them up. It's supposed to ache a little. That's how you know it's working. I wonder what it would be like if we, as God's people, held our hands out wide, (laughs) and we said, wider, 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 you know? Uh, And we looked at people, and we said, you are welcome here. And we looked at each other, and we said, I need you to survive. And so, brothers and sisters, hold your hands up. Hold your hands up wide. Oh, the first two didn't do that. (laughs) Does it ache a little? That's how you know it's working. Amen. And now, if you would rise and sing, we're going to sing first and last of 577.